Welcome to the DTB podcast for December 2015, volume 53, number 12. My name is David Fizakali. I'm DTB's deputy editor. And I'm James Cave. I'm DTP editor-in-chief. So this month, our editorial looks at a particular aspect of drug therapy for long-term conditions, and that's the question of when to stop treatment. So kind of what are the issues we highlight for this editorial? Uh, I think what, what we're talking about here is the fact that increasingly now... Drugs, to be cost-effective, particularly around some of the more expensive drugs, often there's a real importance attached to when these drugs are used, how they should be used, and more importantly sometimes when they should be stopped. And the cost-effectiveness calculation, if you like, doesn't work if doctors continue to prescribe medication when it's not effective. So traditionally, patient long-term condition turns up, start drug therapy, and although there might be annual reviews there's maybe not much thought given to criteria for stopping the treatment. Precisely. And I think, of course, a lot of long-term conditions now, we are using treatments that treat a proxy marker, which may or may not then improve that patient's long-term outcome. And the patient often doesn't feel any better for being on the drugs. And unless we have a clear idea of why we're doing the treatments, what our goals are, what we're trying to achieve, and discuss those with the patient, then the risk is that 10 years down the line, this patient's on eight different drugs, polypharmacy, all the complications associated with that, and we've lost the understanding of why they're taking that drug in the first place. Now, for some drugs and outcomes, it's quite obvious. If you get a harmful effect from it, then there's obviously a reason why you might want to stop it. Exactly. I mean, and we've, and I think, you know, we've never had any problems, largely because, of course, patients are really good at telling us when there's a problem with a drug and, you know, will tell us themselves whether that's a, an issue that they can live with or not. And I think, you know, it's quite interesting that those scenarios where the patient is very much more in the driving seat, we have very little difficulty about making decisions about stopping it. But where... You know, there isn't a side effect where it's more to do with, you know, have they reached a threshold of an HbA1c figure or is their blood pressure controlled? The question then is, do we add more in or do we say that drug hasn't worked? Let's stop it and try something else. And the issue that particularly we bring to the people's attention is the fact that these criteria or arrangements for when to review and stop ought to be highlighted, discussed and agreed between prescriber and patient right at the outset. Absolutely, and I think we're all beginning to recognise that now. There's nothing more difficult than having to go to a patient and tell them that a drug that they've been taking for five years, we're now going to stop because there's some change in the approach to management of this condition or there's been some issue with that drug. And I think, uh, actually, patients are ready to be told, look, at the moment this is the right thing for you, we think it'll have some beneficial outcomes, but we need to review this regularly to make sure that that is the case and, if need be, stop this drug and try something else. So the concept of stopping rules and agreeing something upfront where a patient and the doctor will look at it in X week's time and then on a regular basis. And then if those thresholds aren't meet, coming to an agreement that maybe it's time to stop. Exactly. And there's no doubt about it. The patients who have uh, practiced that with their with their GPs, and the GPs even good at that, these are the patients who are on, you know, two or three medications in their 80s. And ones where they've collected medicines like fluff, they just, you know, often have such problems they get to their 80s and they're on nine, ten drugs. And it's very unclear what's doing what for them. Okay. Thank you very much. Our first article in this issue is a review of a new drug for opioid-induced constipation. 
naloxigol. So let me start with a question. What is naloxigol? So naloxigol is basically naloxone, which has been pegylated. Now, what we mean by that is it's had polyethylene glycol attached to the molecule, and that makes it very big and cumbersome, and it can't get through the blood-brain barrier. So it allows the naloxone opioid antagonist to work on the bowel, particularly on the mu receptors, and prevent the constipation that you get with opiates. So it's targeting a particular aspect of opioid receptor activity, focused on the bowel to try and reduce symptoms or complications of opioid-induced constipation. So what's the specific license for this drug? So this is a drug that's licensed for opioid-induced constipation where the patient hasn't responded to standard laxative therapies. And evidence? Yes, so we have two phase three trials called Kodiak, and they were both identical. Uh, multi-center trials, international, USA, Germany, UK, Europe, big trials, a number of centers they used. And um, these were placebo-controlled trials, so they weren't comparing naloxigol with other laxatives. They were simply comparing it with a placebo. And the cohort of patients that were recruited? So these are patients with chronic pain, not cancer. So this is not patients with cancer, these were patients with chronic pain, and at least 50% of them had to have had what they called laxative inadequate response, and they define this as patients who had had to use laxative at least four or more times in the previous 14 days and still had moderate symptoms of constipation. So there's something about creating a little niche indication there based on this marker of uh, precisely. Response. This, I mean, and this is always a slight worry when you then look at the outcomes and, and, you know, when an outcome is not very clear, then you begin to sort of try and work out what does this actually mean. So, so the primary outcome they had was three bowel actions in a week and, and it had to be one more than they were having previously as well. So it was quite a difficult sort of uh, concept perhaps to get over. The absolute response rates? Well, this is, I mean, the absolute response rates were not great. So naloxigol comes in two doses, 12.5 and 25 milligrams. 12.5, about 41% of the patients taking the drug achieved that primary outcome. And in the high dose, 25 milligrams, it was about 44%. Now, the placebo response was good. That was about 30%. So the absolute, if you like, improvement works out, if you like, numbers needed to treat of between about 7 and 9. So you have to give between 7 and 9 people naloxigol for 12 weeks for one person to be passing one more bowel action a week and at least three. To put that in some sort of perspective, paracetamol and its ability to help patients with osteoarthritis pain also has an NNT of about seven. So you could say it's as good on constipation as paracetamol is on pain. And the response rate was lower than they anticipated. Yes, they were hoping for a 60% response. That's how they designed the trial. So it was a disappointment. So as a result, the licensing authority in Europe restricted its use for people who'd had an inadequate response. Did they restrict its use to only non-cancer patients? No, I think the EMA has said because they can't really demonstrate there should be any difference in a patient with cancer than in a patient without cancer, they have licensed it for the use in patients with chronic pain whether they have cancer or not. They have excluded it in those patients that might be at more 
at risk of having a bowel perforation, so things like ovarian cancer and bowel cancer. And any particular harms we should worry about? Um, it's actually, the adverse event was actually very low. So it is actually a safe drug. Its adverse events were very similar to that of placebo. The only fly in the ointment is this is a drug that is metabolized by the liver. And you have to be careful the CYP3A4, cytochrome P450, is an issue. And you've got to be careful with drugs that inhibit that, things like ketoconazole and clarithromycin. That really is an absolute contraindication to using this drug. And in England and Wales, NICE has said it's an option. They've said it's an option where all else has failed, really, where you've tried laxative therapy and it's standard laxative therapy and that has failed. Yet to be determined in Scotland, they're considering it at the, at the moment. Exactly, as we speak. So overall, it does something? It does something. This drug costs about £50 a month compared to about 6 to £8 for macrogols and about the same sort of amount for lactulose. So it's considerably 10 times more expensive. The thing that struck me was this drug is yet to be compared to any of those in a, a head-to-head. And as a consequence, really, I, I, I'm sure the answer here is to make sure we make best use of the laxatives we have, first of all. And really, this is, should be a last-ditch effort if we've not managed to make some sort of benefit for the patient with those. So start good laxative therapy before or as you start opioid therapy, review it regularly, maximise the use of current laxatives and then there might be a need for something else after that. But there are other things we should be doing first. Precisely. And I think I think most GPs understand the biggest problem with laxatives is getting to patients to take them regularly. They'll take them when they think they need them, and they'll stop them as soon as they feel they don't. And obviously, the thing about the constipation aspect of opiates is that it's not something where, where you get any sort of tolerance. Okay. Thank you very much. And our final article this month is an update on previous articles we've written about glaucoma. So we thought we would do a bit of a refresh on some of the newer drugs that have been launched since our last article. A lot of detail in here, analysis of of various combinations and individual drugs. But if I asked you for kind of two or three key headings or headlines from the article, what would you so, suggest? So, you're right. I mean, it is a, it is a very a complex article with a lot of comparative studies. I think the headline for me is that we do have some new beta blockers since 2003 when we last did the review. We have betaxolol, cartiolol, and levobunolol. And the bottom line for those is compared to timolol, there's no clear benefit. There's a good Cochrane review that did the studies for us and or did the review of the studies for us and uh, suggests there's little uh, clear benefit between them. So that's the first thing. The other big change really since 2003 has been the proliferation of preservative-free drops. There's been some concern that benzalconium chloride can irritate people's eyes sometimes and some people have problems with that. And so there has been this vast increase in the number of preparations now available a lot more expensive than standard preparations. And what we found was that the evidence of benefit from these is actually very poor, not very poor, but it's a paucity of evidence really that they have any real benefit over standard treatment. So the bottom line is we should only be using preservative-free in those patients who've got a demonstrated allergy to the preservatives. Because you can still get eye problems from drops that are preservative-free. Precisely. This, this is the problem, really, is that obviously the drug itself is often actually the cause of the problem, not, not necessarily the preservative. And 
the other issue about prescribing for glaucoma tends to fall to general practice, yet the initiation is with the ophthalmologists. Any suggestions for how this should be handled locally? Because obviously you've got people starting therapy using drugs for which they are not responsible for the budget. And this always causes uh, difficulty. And I think eye uh, medicine in particular for GPs is often a difficult one because I think most of us would agree that we this is an area where we, we're not skilled at. So I think the need for, for locally dis- local discussion and locally planned pathways is really important in this area because, you know, this is not an uncommon condition. Glaucoma is a condition that is also being more common with ageing population. And a 10% difference in cost will have a big impact on the overall drug budget. So ensure that your local care pathways define which groups of patients are priority for preservative-free drops, which are the more expensive ones, and which ones don't need them. Precisely, yes. Okay, thank you very much. To read these and any of our articles, please visit our website at dtb.pmj.com. And if you have any comments, questions, suggestions, please email dtbeditor at bmj.com. Thank you for listening.